All right, so I just want to be able to dive in and transition well right into where we're going to be in our, our sermon series. And so we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount this summer. Uh, we've entitled it, When Two Worlds Collide. And just a purposeful but brief overview with where we've been. So we started off this series. So this is in Matthew uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Here in a few minutes, we're going to be in chapter 7. But we started off in chapter 5. Uh, the first three sermons of this series were really conceptual and uh, purposefully so. Jesus was a very high level talking conceptually about what he was uh, asking his disciples. Um, well, yeah, what he was asking his disciples whenever he was encouraging and encouraging them. And so uh, he gets into the practical after that, just really challenging his disciples uh, how to live out their faith and their belief in him as the Son of God. But he started off very conceptual. And so we, uh, we saw the Beatitudes, which are encouragements, congratulations, things that we aim for. Uh, and then we moved into salt and light. Then Jesus end, ended that, those three sermons or that, this three movement of thoughts. And Jesus said, I am the answer to all these things. I am the answer to the celebration. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are, you know, we just go on and on and on. Jesus is the reason we feel blessed. Jesus is the, Jesus is the reason we can celebrate uh, life and be at that place. And secondly, he's calling us to be salt. He's calling us to be life, uh, a light. And, and Jesus is the only way that we could do that. And he ends in uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says to us that, that he has not come to abolish the law, but he has come to fulfill the law. Now, for a Jew, that had a lot of weighty meaning. For us, we have to struggle a little bit to find out exactly what Jesus meant because we are so far separated uh, from, what, uh, from when Jesus wrote this, but what we really get Jesus saying is that all the rules and all the regulations of the past, uh, I haven't come to, to kick them to the curb to say they don't matter anymore, but I have come to fulfill them. I am the answer to everything. That is key and crucial for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And then all the weeks uh, leading up, so we got uh, chapter 5, verse 23, all the way until where we're going to be today, talking about extremely practical things. And um, Jesus is continuing to say that I am the center of it all. On the surface, what we have seen up until this point, things like lust, divorce, anger, prayer, giving to the needy, uh, Jesus takes these ideas and he has taken them so much deeper so much to a harder level. And if you've been around this summer and you've heard some of these sermons and you have felt overwhelmed by, man, I just don't know if I could get this. Like this is just deeper than I ever really took this idea or this thought, whatever the sermon was on. I think that's good. Because I think that's exactly what Jesus wants us to feel. He wants us to get that he's the point. Not us doing it perfect and right every single time, but us leaning on him to help us as we continue to struggle and battle with lust, or as we continue to struggle and battle with our marriages, as we continue to battle with anger, as we continue to battle with our prayer life and giving to the needy and dot, dot, dot. Whenever we look at that and we're like, I'm not perfect at that, Jesus says, good, I'm showing you not, you're not perfect so that you can lean on me so that uh, together we can work on this for the rest of your life. None of us in this room are ever going to get it before we die. It is progressive sanctification. 
Every day we look at Jesus and hopefully we're a little bit better than we were yesterday and we just continue to get better until the, the day our life ends here on this earth and then we stand before Jesus in glory and then and only then will we be perfect. In this sermon series, if you've actually felt like, man, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job, you've missed the point. Jesus is not coming to us to say, check mark this box and see how well you're doing because that is a very, very much of a self-motivated uh, spirituality. You don't need Jesus at that point. That's dangerous. But for Jesus to overwhelm you and say, man, I don't know if I could do this, huh, that's where we need to be in the midst of, of all this. So these last three weeks, as we've turned the page and we've entered into Matthew chapter 7, these, these last three sermons that, that we've um, uh, heard is we, we've talked about first and uh, foremost that our treasure is to be in Christ and to be in Christ alone, that our money does not rule us. Uh, we, we can't serve both God and money. And also all of our treasures and all of our possessions, the things that we long for in, in this life and that bring us actually a lot of joy, that's not the reason for for life um jesus is saying that he alone is the reason for life uh, and, and saying all this uh, jesus pokes holes in the american dream america's dream isn't bad i mean we live in a, a developed country and we have the privileges that many people don't have in other countries and he's not saying that we need to live like we're a haitian or that we're south sudanese we don't need to do it that way but we need to be transformed with the way that we think so he's poking holes all in it. And also after that, he talked about anxiety and he, and he said that we should not let anxiety overcome us. Hearing that sermon, and does Jesus actually know what it's like to be human? <laughs> I mean, we are an anxious creature. I mean, he answers that obviously. Yes, he understands what it's like to be a human. He was 100% human. He was 100% God. And he was sinless in the midst of all that. But you just hear the aspiration. It's, it's overwhelming to think because every day I think I get anxious about something. And lastly, um, last week we talked about um, before we judge anyone, we have to look at ourselves rightly. We have to humble ourselves. We have to take the log out of our eye before we can even look at the speck in someone else's eye. We live in a culture that loves comparing ourselves to other people. It's extremely difficult we find value and we find identity in comparing ourselves to our neighbors, to the person you're sitting next to right now, to people you see every single day, the people you work with, to uh, moms comparing themselves to other moms, homeschool, to public school, to this, to that. That's what we do. And Jesus is saying, be careful. I have a higher standard for that. Again, it could be overwhelming. And because of its overwhelming feeling, we get the sense that we need to align ourselves with Christ Jesus. We are never the solution. We will never be the solution in the midst of all this, but Jesus is. And we get to, to today's sermon, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 7 here in a few minutes. And um, uh, this flows beautifully into this next section. Um, I believe Jesus is ending the practical talk. In the sermons following this, uh, we, we get to see a lot of insight, but I believe the practical ends here, and it's um, 
appropriate that he talks about what we're going to see because it starts with Jesus being the answer starting in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 and it uh, and this what we're going to see today is Jesus is the answer as well what we're going to see and the big idea I want us to get today is that you are never alone what do we do when we feel overwhelmed we lean on the one with all the solution we pray. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the Lord's Prayer. And in many ways, we're going to look at, uh, in every way, we're going to look at prayer again today. But I hope to see a biblical theology with, with how um, Scripture is leading us to pray so that we can rightly see what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. So if you got your Bibles, look at that. Start in verse 7 with me, and we'll just read this section together, and, uh, and let, let's talk about it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. I'm sorry, sorry, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if, it, uh, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Okay, let's be honest with each other. This passage of Scripture, um, this could be a very difficult passage of Scripture for many of us. And here's why I say this, is because if we have had to walk through trauma in our lives, if you know God and if you follow Jesus, you have probably spent many, many hours on your knees in prayer, begging, begging asking, seeking, knocking. We look at passages like this, and we just think this is the, um, uh, the secret weapon, if you will, to just get what we want. And so we dry, we're driven to the one place that we know, and we ask. But in the midst of trauma, we have ideas on how things should play out, or we have ideas on how we want things to play out, but God does not answer the prayers in the way that maybe you or I want. And so this leads us to just ask a bigger question. What is Jesus really trying to get across with inside this verse? For those of us who haven't had to experience much trauma, we read passages like this and we, we read it like it's just a good story and we just read right over it and we just move on. And then whenever our friend is going through trauma, we just say, just pray. It's as easy as that. Just pray. Ask. God says he'll give. None of that's wrong. But we need to know exactly what Jesus is driving us to in the context of the Sermon on the Mount to say this is what prayer looks like and here's where our expectations to, uh, are to be. And whenever we feel uh, doubt sink in because we have prayed so much for something and it hasn't come our way, that, that we should know that that feeling is normal. But that's not from God. 
And we should know what to do with that. And that's what I hope, where I hope uh, that we walk together today. So there are four things that I want us to see as we journey together to understand prayer, this big idea, this big biblical theology of what prayer is. The first thing I want us to do is uh, walk through and see that God desires to speak to uh, slash with his creation. Secondly, we're going to do a quick overview of prayer throughout the entire Bible to see prayer on a bigger, grander scale than what the first point is going to drive us to. Thirdly, we're going to get specific into the book of James. James has a few verses that really give us good insight into uh, how to handle and how to maneuver and how to see God within prayer. And then lastly, we're going to end up right back to where we just started in Matthew chapter 7 and see exactly what Jesus is pointing to in the midst of the entire Bible as he's pointing us to lean on him and trust him. So let's just dive right on in to, to the first point here. And um, so the first point is God desires to speak to and with his creation. Uh, I, I use to and with because here's the idea is that God has created everything. And there is thoughts out there that God exists, that God did create, but God walked away from it all after he created it. That's deism. A lot of our founding fathers had this idea of a deistic viewpoint. Uh, A lot of us have this idea as well with the way that we live. Though we wouldn't say that's our theology or the way that we see scripture, but that's the way that we live, is that God doesn't actually interact with us. But we have to see that God, the creator of everything, doesn't just talk to us. He doesn't just demand a command from us, though he does that throughout all of scripture. He also speaks with us. He wants to hear from us. He engages with us. And we see this in a couple of really prominent places in scripture. So God desires to interact with his creation. And let's look at two examples where God is dramatically, in my opinion, looking, or uh, he's dramatically interacting with his creation. Two people. We're going to look at Abraham, and we're going to look at Moses. And um, uh, we're not going to turn to these passages of Scripture, but there's where they are. You can write them down, and you can read them on your own later. But let's just remember the stories. If you know your Bible, you'll connect to this story as, as I share it. If you've never heard this story before, I hope that you understand as I'm talking about it. But Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, uh, Abraham has just been reminded of the promise that God has given him, that he will have a son, and this son's will, will, his name will be Isaac. Sarah, his wife, you know, they're older in age in this story. Sarah just laughed whenever they heard God, when she heard God say that she was about to be pregnant, because she's like, how in the world, I'm in my 90s, how in the world can I conceive and give birth to a child? So this is the part of scripture where this is happening in Genesis chapter 18. And so uh, God just reminded Abraham of the promise that, that he has made to make his descendants as great as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then the story turns and um, God is going to walk to this place called Sodom to check it out because he's heard a cry against Sodom, that there are godless things going on, that the people are not worshiping him. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to go to Sodom and I'm going to wipe it out. And Abraham said, 
Well, what we need to know is Abraham's nephew is there, Lot is there, and his family is there. And as Abraham is interacting with God, he said, God, would you please um, relent from your wrath if you are able to find 50 people, if there are 50 people inside this whole nation that, that are righteous, would you please pull back your wrath and not wipe it out? God says, okay, I hear you. Abraham's interest is piqued. It's like, all right, God, if you'll do 50, will you do 45? He's, God says, yeah, I'll do 45. If you find 40 people, will you? Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll relent from my wrath and not destroy Sodom if I find 40 people. And then it's funny to see Abraham as he's talking to God. He's like, please don't get angry with me, but I'm going to keep going here. And so he goes from, uh, some, from 40 to 30, then from 30 to 20, then from 20 to 10. And he's begging God, if you find 10 people who are righteous inside Sodom, would you please uh, hold back your wrath? And God says, okay. And God goes to Sodom, and the story continues, but that's not the point of what I'm talking about. But what I want to look at is that how God has uh, engaged with Abraham here. Some may say that we have the ability to change God's mind. That is just not the way that God is portrayed throughout the entire scripture. God is not a finite being. He's not someone that we could sway or that we could convince. He's not limited to uh, what we do. God does what he wants to do, and that is laced all throughout scripture. So if that's true, then what exactly is going on here inside of Genesis chapter 18? It is God interacting with, Moses, or sorry, with Abraham and saying, I, the creator of everything, am willing to engage you. I'm going to listen to you, and my heart is going to be there with you. I have compassion. I have love. But I also have my righteousness that needs to be upheld. So that's a really, that passage of scripture has encouraged me so much because I know that God wants to interact with me. The creator of everything that we see that makes us bow to our knees. As you watch the stars in the sky and as you watch creation around you, it goes, oh my gosh, isn't God amazing? Yeah, he is. And he wants to speak to you and to me. Secondly, we see um, God interacting with Moses. Maybe you're familiar with this story where Moses is on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 32. And as Moses is interacting with God on Mount Sinai, all the Israelites are down at the base of the mountain. And the, Moses has been gone for so long that they create this golden calf. They take all the gold that they have from Egypt because they've just fled Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They uh, melt down the gold. They make this calf and they start worshiping this golden calf. And God gets angry and he starts talking to Moses on the mountain and he says in uh, Exodus chapter 32 um, he, he lets Moses know what's going on down at the base of the mountain and he says my I am going to destroy the nation of Israel I am so angry with them right now that's the Jordan paraphrase but uh, that's essentially what, what he is saying and Moses says to God God do not forget your promise do not forget your promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob that you said to them that you were going to make them as great as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That has been your covenant with them from the very beginning. Do not, God, waste them. Do not wipe them out. And God says, okay, I won't. Did Moses, or did, yeah, did Moses change God's mind? Did God actually forget the covenant that he's made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Absolutely not. That's not the God that I serve. But God is very intentional with the way he is interacting with his creation. And you and I are no Abraham or no Moses. 
But we are human beings created in the image of God, and we have the same interaction with the Holy Spirit living in our lives today. And that brings me great hope. So God desires to speak to and with his creation. Taking it more specifically, um, let's look at uh, prayer throughout the Bible. So what is prayer? Um, at the most basic definition of prayer is just talking with God. Prayer is more than just meditation or a passive reflection. It's a direct communication with the one true living God who has created everything, even us. Prayer can be audible. Prayer can be silent. Prayer can be public. Prayer can be private. Prayer can be formal. Prayer can be informal. I'm not going to pretend like I understand all the facets of prayer that's out there. There are so many churches, Jesus believe in churches that are more charismatic in their movement, and they, uh, tongues is something that they speak. I don't understand tongues. I've seen it a couple of different times, and I can't say it's ungodly, but it's a different type of prayer language. I think God is glorified with most of it whenever it's done with the right heart. I'm not going to say I understand every facet of prayer, but I do, I will say that, man, prayer is, is deep, it's personal, it's not complicated, but yet we hear other people pray, and they, they pray so well. Matt comes up, and he prays every Sunday. Man, I, the guy just knows how to talk to God. It's like he's just talking to me. I don't know how to do that. So when it comes to our small groups, we're hanging out with friends, and we ask for someone to pray. We're just like, ah, I'm comparing myself to other people. We talked about that a minute ago, right? We love to compare ourselves to other people. And God is saying, no, it's you, it's me. We're having a conversation. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just talk to me. That's overall what prayer is. And generally, as we see prayer in the Bible, prayer is described as a couple different things. This is not exhaustive. This is just a beginning point with some places in Scripture that you can look up later that, that, that exemplify this. But, but prayer, A, first and foremost, is, is just seeking God's favor. It's aligning or realigning ourselves with Him. Prayer is communing with Him, having that relationship with Him, just seeking Him, knowing He's there and talking to Him. Also, prayer is pouring out our soul to the Lord, emptying ourselves before him. So whenever we have praise and we have thanksgiving, we can't help but keep it in. We see David all throughout scripture go to the rooftops or to the mountaintops and sing praises to the Lord. That is a prayer language. Whenever we hurt and we got nothing else to give, we lay ourselves before him and say, God, I hurt right now. Guess what? God is a big boy, and he could take your hard language that you give to him. As long as you're honest with him, God can work with honesty. It's when we're lying to ourselves, we're lying to God, that's where things get complicated and difficult. Just pour out our soul to the Lord. He desires it. That's what prayer is. Even more deeply, it's crying out to the heavens it's laying it all before him and saying there's nothing greater than the God that I'm praying to. I make other things God in my life, but I have to speak to this God so that I can continue to just realign my passions and my visions with his passion and his visions. It's drawing near to God. It's praising him for who he is. Our God in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Hallowed be your name. I am not the God of me. You are the God of me. That's what prayer is. is It is drawing near to Him, praising His nature. It should be putting Him in His rightful seat, in His rightful spot. And lastly, again, it's not exhaustive, but just on the notes here, it's kneeling before the Father, submitting ourselves to His infinite beauty. It's submitting ourselves to His infinite worth and knowing that He is the one who gets all the glory, not us. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. We turn to God in prayer. We don't worry about anything. We pray about everything. And when I say everything, yes, I mean everything. God wants everything brought before him because he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that um, prayer is without ceasing. We are always, as his followers, communing with him all day long. Yes, it's appropriate to take a few minutes in the morning to just set everything aside and have a prayer time. We commune with him all day long. It's good before our meals and it's good before bedtime to to set aside and just thank him for the way that he's interacted with us. That is good, but prayer is a continual thing all day long. Is prayer for us mainly then? Does we can't change God's mind? Is prayer for God? I'm gonna be honest, I don't know. What I do know is that scripture calls us to interact with the creator of the universe. So I do. And I've never been disappointed. He's not my invisible friend. He's my God. Number three. Let's get specific insights now. We see a big picture of prayer, but let's get specific into the book of James. James is a letter written to a church, and he gives, again, just specific answers mainly into unanswered prayers. Any Garth Brook fans out there? Sometimes I thank God do for unanswered prayers. No? Anybody? Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. Okay, I can, okay. I was going to sing the whole chorus, but I'll spare you. Halfway expected you to jump in with me, you let me down. Okay. Um, but James gets into unanswered prayers, and, and, and let's just look at, at what um, James says to us. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Man, you could read all the way through 10 and 11 and 12, and man, there's such rich stuff. This sermon isn't about James, but let's just look at, uh, at a few verses here and, and pull something to help make light of what's going on in Matthew chapter 7. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with inside you? Your desires and uh, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you do not obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have 
because you do not ask. You, do, uh, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. What I love here is James doesn't use a lot of words to describe this to us. He gets right to the point, and there's things that, that we, can, we can pull out from this. Why does God not answer certain prayers? Garth Brooks were preaching this sermon to say because that sometimes that's God's greatest gifts are some unanswered prayers. Our alignment many times has numero uno us in mind, not God's glory. Again, what James is doing here is not a formula. It's an insight. It's an encouragement. It's something for us to know and for us to see. But first, what we see here in James is God does not answer because we don't ask. We live in a me-first society. We live in a buckle-up-your-bootstraps-and-just-get-it-done type society. That's America for us. If you can't do it or if you're hurt, rub dirt on it and just keep going, right? Stop crying. You'll be fine. And so, whenever I want what you have, I'm either A, going to go take what you got because it's just easier and I can do that. I won't, so no need to lock up your houses for my sake anyway. Or I'm going to covet what you have. I want what you have, and so I'm going to fight and I'm going to quarrel with you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get whatever I want. And God says, you don't have because you don't ask. Oh, okay. Whenever I was a kid, I, I kind of took that as in, well then, I want that Lamborghini. I'm just going to ask, right? Because that's what he's calling us to do. Uh, he doesn't quit there. He gets to the second point. We, God does not answer because we ask with the wrong heart and with the wrong motives, with our passions and our desires in mind. We, we do not ask I'm sorry, when we do ask, we struggle to differentiate between what we need and what we want. Our prayers usually are driven by what we want, and God knows exactly what we need. Again, driving us to what Matthew 7 is going to say here in a second. It's so beautiful when you see the bigger picture. James differentiates between asking for the furthering our kingdom and asking to further God's kingdom. It is about his glory, not our glory. James uses extreme examples, like we'll go off and we'll murder someone, or we'll steal from someone, or we'll just go into fighting, right? So, but let's get down to the practical, and let's get real, and, and what about the times when what we want may seem kind of selfish, but we don't know exactly what God wants? Maybe it's, it's we have a loved one who is sick and we're begging for God to do something with it. I don't want my wife to die. I can't imagine me living without her anywhere near me. We, I was gone three days without her because she came to join us at Water Ski Camp for, after a few days. But a few days I was without her and I feel a little lost. I say a little lost because I'm at camp. I got a lot of things going on, you know, okay. But whenever she's off doing fun things and I'm at home doing nothing, I feel a lot of loss. If she gets sick, if she gets cancer, you better bet you I'm begging God. And if he does not deliver my prayers, it will drive me to a place, it potentially could drive me to a place of darkness. 
So what is God getting at? How do I know if my heart is selfish or not selfish? How do I make sure that I don't land and end up in a place of doubt when God just chooses not to answer in a way that I've been begging? I want to be honest, I think some of the times, a lot of the times, we don't know what to do and how to pray. And if I'm extremely honest, we are terrified of being let down by God. So we don't pray. If I just don't ask God for healing, he can't disappoint me. And God's like, that's, that's not it. You're missing the point. Remember Abraham. Remember Moses. Remember every other time someone's interacted with me. Remember Jesus saying, when you hurt, I hurt with you. I've gone through it all. I know exactly what you're going through. I come alongside you, and I understand your pain. We have to remember all of these things. Scripture calls us to pray and calls us to trust that God hears us and answers appropriately. Not our desires, but his desires for us. He answers appropriately, even when, many times, they're unanswered prayers. This leads us to our final point together today. You're not alone. Matthew 7, getting back into that. Being a follower of Jesus can be a difficult journey. It can be a difficult journey because um, we'll find lots of successes in the Sermon on the Mount and what it's calling us to. We'll find lots of successes in, in, uh, um, in lust and in anger and in divorce uh, and, and all of that stuff that Jesus is talking about. But the things that scream the loudest to us and have the most impact in our lives are our failures. When we do not measure up to God's standards, those are the loudest things in our lives. So, God knew from the very beginning that we would not succeed on our own. That's why Jesus is the answer. And that's why I think prayer is right here in this passage because he's driving us. He's driving us and reminding us, you can't do this on your own. This is why Jesus is so important because he is the answer to all of life's unknown questions. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Let's just look at these three things, exactly what's going on here. Again, this is not a formula into prayer. It's God driving to our hearts to say, this is how we pray and how we expect. We A, we ask we can't stop asking. We have to ask. We have to come before God, and we have to ask him. We cannot be silent. Again, I don't know exactly all the ins and outs and how prayer works with God because I'm not God. But I know that he hears, and I know he interacts, and so we can't stop coming before him. Secondly, we seek when we seek, we pursue the will of God. So we, not only are we asking, we're pursuing his will. Let's just take Jesus, for example. Do you remember when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, the night before he was crucified? He was in the garden, and he was stressing out about what he was about to experience. He knew it was going to bring so much pain. Swat, sw uh, uh, sorry, that's water ski camp there. Um, 
drops of blood sweating from his brow coming down off his face and his direct words to God were, if there's any other way, do it. Take this cup from me. I don't want to go this direction. But, not my will, but your will be done. We come before God and we ask, And in the midst of our asking, we pursue God's will and we align ourselves with God's will. We know that his way are higher than our ways. When our babies do not make it, we know his wills and his ways are higher than our ways. Whenever marriages crumble and it's everything we put into it, but they still crumble, we know that his will is higher than our ways. We know that he interacts with us. Whenever cancer ravages a human being, we watch them go through pain. We know his will is higher than our ways and we beg and we we beg and we beg because we get to the knocking part. We persevere. We don't quit. We keep going. As, as soon as we realize and as, as much as we understand that we are pursuing God in his will, if we do not have the conviction that it is our will, we just continue to pursue and persevere knocking on that door. Knowing our sinful hearts, we could be wrong. So when God answers, or when God, things turn out the way we don't want to, or when things do turn out the way that we're praying, we know where God is in the midst of every piece of it. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. That doesn't mean it's not painful. It just means that you're not alone. I don't care what you've done yesterday, or the way you feel like you don't measure up. God is there. You're alone. You're never, ever alone. I end with this story. Um, I was blessed growing up in a home with a mom and a dad, still married. They love each other a lot. Um, My parents have lots of faults, just as I have lots of faults. Most of uh, our fights, they were wrong. I was never wrong, but um, (laughs) so whenever I was in middle school, um, my, my dad pretty much walked away from Jesus I say it like that because he went to church every single Sunday, but he was like a shell. He did his own thing during the week. It was obvious that he was not loving Jesus. He was making choices that just made you scratch your head. You're like, what's going on, Dad? Middle school kid, I, I, I didn't know any different. I just, that's just the life I lived. Talk to mom, and, and mom in tears at times. I got into, got into high school, and dad was still going through this phase. He, some of my most precious memories are whenever I was, um, once I started driving, you know, I'd hang out with friends and I would come home late and my mom would still be up, not because she was worried about me, but because she wanted to see me before I got home, or make sure I got home. I'd come home at 11, 12 o'clock and uh, my dad had already been asleep for an hour or two, my siblings were asleep and, and my mom and I would just talk for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and sometimes some of the most raw conversations happened during those moments and, and that's when I learned that my mom was begging God for my dad's life. Please bring him back to you. Faithfully, she prayed. Again, many faults, but that lady's a prayer warrior. Faithfully pray for four, five, six years that my dad would come back to Jesus. Never gave up. Never stopped being hurt. Never scolded him. Never humiliated him. Loved him. Six years later, dad came back full force. Dad's loving Jesus, leading Bible studies. He's preaching on mission trips. My dad can't talk. Uh, it's, it's interesting. 
But man, it's so fun to see perseverance. Don't give up. Don't give up. I want to lead our time into communion and just say, many of us in this room, we've given up. Um, prayer's not something that we're accustomed to because we've been hurt. Or we've never been trained or we've never been taught how to pray. But no, all the things that we've heard up in the Sermon on the Mount at this point, ask, seek, knock, come to him. Don't give up. If you and I, the evil ones in this relationship with God, if we can give our children good gifts, how much better gifts is God going to give us in the end? Use this communion time to reconnect with Jesus. I'm going to ask our ushers, whenever you're ready, to come forward. So in Scripture, Jesus calls the church, us, to come together and take communion regularly. We got the... um, we got the bread that represents the body of Christ broken for us. We have the juice that represents the blood of Christ shed for us. Use this time as a realignment with your Savior. Um, our ushers are going to pass out the bread, and, um, and the song's going to be playing in the background. So um, as you take this time, I would encourage you to just connect with God. Be honest with him with where you've been your feelings towards him, confess it, and allow him to just engage with you during this moment. Uh, Ushers, if you could pass the bread, please.